Are you excited? You came to church when it was snowing. You guys are like the all-stars. Seriously. It was a good reason to just sit down in the house and get your blanket, right? Turn on the internet, watch online, but you didn't. You showed up. Everybody that's watching, we love you anyways. So it's 1146. Um, Typically, I don't speak very long, but this is going to be a power-packed message, Um, not just today, but the whole series. I'm talking about the seven churches of Revelation. And unfortunately, I'm not going to get to the seven churches this morning, (laughs) because if you've ever read Revelation chapter 1, you can basically stay there for a long time. And it's so important that we understand Revelation chapter 1 before we get into chapter 2, okay? So do you have patience for me? I tried to be simple. I tried to be, you know, like, we'll get back to that. We'll get back to that. We'll get back to that. But the Holy Spirit has a message for us from the book of Revelations this morning. And we are going to be equipped in not only understanding it, but how to read it. How to read the book of Revelation is really my goal and my prayer this morning. Um, So the book of Revelation is the revelation of Jesus. It's the unveiling of the risen, glorified Son of God. And that's the whole point. That's what we want to remember today. He's not the guy that was on the cross. He's not the Jesus on the cross. He's not the Jesus that was had the crown of thorns on his head, that was stabbed. I mean, he's still got the scars. Yeah, sure. But he's the glorified Jesus. He's the king of kings. He's the the powerful man with the fire in his eyes and the sword coming out of his mouth. He is not to be messed with. He's our Jesus, right? And that's what we're going to talk about today. Throughout the whole Bible, we see Jesus. You can see him in the Old Testament, Genesis 3. You can see him throughout the Old Testament prophets. He's been talked about, right? He's been prophesied about. You can see him in the New Testament, of course, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the story of his life. You can see him in Paul's letters, and you can see him in Revelation. The Bible is all about Jesus. And Revelation was that last word to his church. It was that last word to his bride, And guys, I know it's uncomfortable to be called a bride, but get over it. (laughs) You are the bride of Christ. Amen? So you, this is a letter for you here, in here. Jesus' bride. And he wants us to know that he is ready for his bride. So this is an invitation to relationship. At the end of Revelations, he said, behold, I am coming soon. Can you feel that? Can you feel that he is coming soon? We can feel it. We just pick up our phone and we can feel it. We wake up in the morning and we can feel it. You look out the window and all of, the, all of creation is groaning. We can feel that Jesus is coming soon. And you know, a lot of us have a tendency, and I know I did for so many years, we have a tendency to read Revelation as this prophetic map. Right? We want to we know what's happening. We want to know what to do. We want to know what's going to happen. You know, when is this going to happen? What does this look like? What does this mean? And, and it is, but it's so much more. It's so much more than a picture of what's going to happen at the end of all things. We have to rethink. Remember that word repent? Is rethink. Change our thinking. This is not just a prophetic map, but it is a revealing of this glorious bridegroom 
the one seated on the throne in heaven, our prophet, priest, and king. He's ours. He's ours. He's our bridegroom. In Revelation 1.1, it says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his bondservants the things which must take place soon. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John. Who's a bondservant in here? Come on. That's a person who has decided. We learned Friday night, right? Ladies, has decided to serve the Lord. My whole life is about serving him. It's not about my job. It's not about my family. It's not about my relationships. My whole life is about serving God. Can we say that? Because that's the person that this letter is written to. Whoa, right? That's the message that this person, this this message has been given to. So we start with the word revelation. Translated into the Greek, this word is apocalypsis. Sound familiar? Apocalypse, right? We've heard of that word before. What comes to mind when you hear the word apocalypse? The end of the world, right? (laughs) The end of the world. And our dictionaries, can you put that up there? Our dictionaries actually define it as the complete final destruction of the world. So you're not wrong, right? Because in our language, in this present time, that's how you define it. It's the end of the world. It's complete destruction. It's damage on an awesome or catastrophic scale, right? How many movies have been made about the apocalypse? I looked it up, and I counted them, and it took a long time. So before 1970, 36 movies were created about the apocalypse, right? 39 in the 70s, 44 in the 80s, 40 in the 90s, 68 movies in the 2000s. Between 2010 and 2020, 113 movies about the apocalypse. And so far in this decade, three years, we have 23 movies created about the apocalypse. Do you think we're obsessed? I think our culture is obsessed about knowing the end of the world. The apocalypse, the story, what's going to happen, right? But this is not what revelation means. It's not even what revelation means. Because if you go back to the Greek, if you study the word language of revelation, it's two words. It's apo and calypto. Now, apo means to lift. To lift. And calypto means to uncover. So apocalypto actually means the revealing of Jesus Christ. The uncovering of the glorified King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Not the one that's on the cross, right? The one with fire in his eyes. The one with burning feet and white hair like wool. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And the whole book of Revelation, the whole Bible, actually, is about the revealing of Jesus Christ. So when we look at this book of Revelation, we can look at it as the lifting of the veil, the unveiling of Jesus. Or basically, that whole book is saying, here he is. 
Wow. Now when we approach the book of Revelation, we don't have to approach it with confusion. We don't have to approach it with fear, right? Anybody been kind of fearful when you've read the book of Revelation when talking about the beast and the, then the, the trumpets and, oh my gosh, the whole world's going to be destroyed? It can be a little heavy, right? But it's all about the revealing of Jesus. So there's an introduction to set, to set up our study. That's basically what this whole, this whole service will be. And we're learning, we learned in our Bible study on Friday night that there's a way to study the books of the Bible, okay? You look at the main author, you look at the main characters, right? So we're going to look at the character, the main character. If it's the revealing of Jesus, who's the main character? Jesus, not the devil, not the Antichrist. Jesus is the main character, And if you start with the main character in the story of the book of Revelation, that's where we're going to start. And then we're going to move on to John and then the seven churches. I promise we will get there. But it's so fascinating. And there's so much depth and meaning. Like, I don't want to skip over everything. (laughs) I know I'll skip over some things because we just don't have the capacity. But I don't want to skip over a lot. So we're in Revelation 1, 5 through 8. And this is describing Jesus. It says, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. Verse 6, and he made us into a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Verse 7, behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. Verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. That is the main character of the book of Revelation. And he is not to be messed with. Amen? So we're going to go back through this verse. He is called the faithful witness. He is called the faithful witness. And isn't everybody in this world, especially Generation Z, looking for truth? Right? What is truth? (laughs) They have no clue because we haven't told them. Truth is Jesus Christ. He is the faithful witness witness. In John 18, 37, it says, for this I have come to testify to the truth. He is the faithful witness. If we need truth in our life, he's the faithful witness and he stands right next to us. That's what he was doing in worship. He was saying, I am here. Be aware of my presence. Jesus is in the room and it's not just here in this building. He's in your kitchen. He's in your bedroom. He's in your workplace. Jesus is with you. It was so cute. I was talking to Tommy, (laughs) and we were talking about Jesus, and I said, you know, Jesus lives in your heart? And he said, Jesus is my heart? He said, I want everybody in my heart. (laughs) And it's just the, the innocence, right, of just wanting everyone he loves to be with him. And that's what we, we need to live our life like. Like, Jesus, you're going to work with me today, right? You're going to the store with me right now, right? I know you're right there. He's our faithful witness standing right by us. The second thing, he's the firstborn of the dead. 
He is the one who took on flesh, died, and then conquered death. In Hebrews 2.14, if you're taking notes, it says, through death, he might destroy the one who has the power over death. He had to take on death. He was the firstborn of the death, dead. Did anyone else die before him? Yes, of course. Did anyone else die and then raise from the dead? Not like Jesus. He conquered death, right? Lazarus raised from the dead, but it was because of Jesus. <laughs> he went and took the keys of death. The next one is he's the ruling king. He's seated at the right hand of God in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. If you're taking notes, write down Ephesians 1, 20 and 21 and read it later. He's the ruling king. There's no other power greater. It doesn't matter how many kings make their threats, right? It doesn't matter what Putin says. It doesn't matter what our president says. It doesn't matter what the North Korean guy says. It doesn't matter what the China guy says. There is a king over every other kings. And he's the one that's standing beside you. We have this revelation of Jesus in our life. The next description in this verse is so important. It's actually a description of a verb. You know, Jesus can be a verb too. <laughs> His very person can be love and forgiveness. He's love and forgiveness. And that word love there isn't our kind of love. It's agape love. It's the different kind of love. It's the, it's the interaction. That's when love has an interaction. You have to, this kind of love, you have to receive it. There's a, there's a living and breathing exchange in this love. And then some versions actually say it's continual. You know, he continually loves us. It's not a love that wears out. My love wears out, right? When I get angry with Adrian, my love wears out. Like it gets up and walks out the door. <laughs> it's real. His love continually works in my life. And so it's my responsibility then to receive that love. It's agape. It's receiving love. Then jump down to verse 8. It's the last description that we can get into here. He's the alpha and the omega. He's the beginning and he's the end. You know, we usually stop there and we're like, yeah, he's the beginning and the end. He's the gener Genesis and Revelation. Do you know there's something really cool? If you look a little bit deeper, he's the Aleph and the Tef, Tav, Hebrew letters. He's stating here that he is the word. Jesus Christ is the word of God. So if he's the beginning and the end, what's in the middle? Jesus. He's all of it. He's A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, right? All the way back down to Z. He's all of it. And then the next part of this was awesome. You know in John 1, 1, if you're taking notes, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's the whole story. But this even makes it more amazing who is and who was and who is to come. Not only is he the Word, but he's inside and outside of time all at the same time, 
Our mind can't even comprehend this, right? Our mind is too small. God, help us. Give us understanding. And there's good news for that because he does. And we'll get to, we'll get to that. But it's alive. His word is alive. It applies, this word right here, it applies to today, to yesterday, and to our future. That's the power of the word of God. That's why we have to read the word of God. Because it's not just a prophetic word for the New Testament church. It's a prophetic word for our life. It's a prophetic word for the nations. It's a prophetic word for yesterday and for today. We can see it fulfilled in the past, and we can believe that it will be fulfilled tomorrow. That's how his word, he, it was, it is, and it is to come. He's the word. We can't bottle it up and explain it in our denominational understanding, right? Of course we believe certain truths, but we better have a little bit of fear, understanding that his word is bigger than anyone's brain on this earth that has ever lived, right? We hold fast to our core doctrinal truths, and then we, we tremble at this word. Understanding and knowing that the signs of the times don't interpret this word. This word interprets everything that's happening in our life and out there. This word is the author of our future. In Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is alive and active. That's a word, that's a scripture to have in your heart, to memorize, to write it on a paper, to put it on your mirror, right? It's sharper than any two-edged sword, and it cuts through our natural reality. It cuts through flesh. It cuts right through the news headlines. It cuts right through the conspiracy theories. It cuts right through our reality. The word of God is bigger than we can even realize. So when we look into Revelation, you see why I can't even go real fast on this? I'm like, I want to get the plan. I was talking to Adrian. The plan was to get the first four churches done. Yeah, right. There's so much. It's so important to, to slow down when we read the word of God. So we... Look at Revelation, and we look for the unveiling of Jesus. We understand that we are not only reading an ancient, apocalyptic, prophetic writing, but we are reading the person of Jesus. We are reading the person of Jesus. So that's the main character. The second, the second character is John the Revelator. John the Revelator. I really enjoyed studying John. I hadn't done that before. And John the Revelator, we don't really know that much about him from the Bible. It's not like Paul or Peter, right? They were like more of a main stage kind of guys. John, we know that he was loved by Jesus. And we know that he was part of the inner circle, right? I'm getting ahead of myself. So go back to verse 1. And before we move on to the churches, we've got to talk about John. Okay, so we know John was the writer of Revelation. He was also, he wrote the Gospel of John, as well as 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Now, there's some controversy about that. If you're a theologian, I mean, I'm not arguing with you because I'm not. But for the most part, we believe that he was the author of all of these books, okay? He was one of Jesus' disciples, 
And he was called early in his ministry on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. So he was one of the fishermen that left their boats and their dad, right? His brother James, they were fishing with their dad, minding their own business. Jesus comes along and says, hey, guys, follow me. They're like, okay, we're going to leave everything we know. We're going to leave our business. We're going to leave our internship with our father, and we're just going to come and hang out with you for three years. How many people would do that? They saw something on Jesus, right? They knew that he had something that they needed to learn. And so he was one of Jesus' disciples. He had 12 disciples, but three, right? But three of them were often found to be more intimate with Jesus in the conversations that he had. He poured into them very, very um, personally into these three. And these three were Peter, James, and John. So John was one of the three that really um, had that, you know, up close and personal relationship with Jesus. And then when he writes the Gospel of John, he writes about himself, the disciple that Jesus loved. Isn't that cool? Like he... Agape, he knew how to receive love from Jesus. He was like, I know. I don't care that you all think it's weird. He loves me. (laughs) I'm loved. I'm his best friend. That's kind of how I see it. Like, I'm his best friend. (laughs) Like, nobody else knows him like I do. And John lived that life. He had that intimacy, that, that personal friendship with Jesus. Man, just that. Do we have a personal friendship with Jesus. I've been challenging myself with this lately because I'm a, I'm a praying to God the Father kind of girl. You know, I pray to the Holy Spirit, but I, I don't know. I'm challenging myself. Like, invite Jesus to hang out with you, Mary. Like, sh- see him in your room. Like, talk to him like he's there. So I've been really trying to purposefully invite him into my reality, right? <clears throat> Let him be your best friend, in John 13, 23 and 24, and I'm going to read it. I didn't plan to, but there's such significance here. This story is about John being really loved. I'm going to put my glasses on. Hold on. I use 14 font because I can't read my Bible. Anyways, this is in John 13, 21 through 25, and this is the story of um, the disciples all up in the upper room, and they're having dinner, and Jesus was becoming, it says in verse 21, he was becoming visibly distressed. And he says, I tell you the truth, that one of you will betray me. And the disciples began to stare at one another, wondering who was the unfaithful disciple. You could imagine, like, they're just looking around like, what? Which, who is it? What, who's going to do this to you, Jesus? You know, and they're looking around and they're, they're kind of getting frantic there. And Jesus was quiet. And it says, one disciple in particular who was loved by Jesus, who was that? That was John. He reclined next to Jesus at the table, next to him at the table. And Peter, because he wanted to know who it was, he motioned to the disciple at Jesus' side. So you can see, you have Jesus sitting at the table, you have John sitting right next to Jesus, just kind of hanging out, you know laying down, relaxing. They sat on the floor and ate at a table, and they were just chilling, right? And then Jesus drops this bomb on the whole room, and they're like, who is going to, who's going to betray him? And Peter didn't ask Jesus. He asked John. Listen to this. He said to the beloved disciple, 
find out who the betrayer is. And the beloved disciple, leaning into Jesus, he said, Lord, who is it? And Jesus went on to tell him, it's the one who dips the bread in the cup with me. See, John had this relationship with Jesus that nobody else had. Peter could have just asked Jesus that, but he knew Jesus tells John secrets, right? You are the beloved. You are the beloved. Jesus tells you secrets. He tells you what's going to happen. He tells you how to react to the news. He tells you what this book means. And that's why I believe John had the great responsibility to receive this revelation of Jesus glorified, right? Because he was so close to him. It was in his intimacy that he knew what this all meant. It was in this intimacy, this intimate friendship that God revealed what was to come to John. Friendship with Jesus is so important. Then there's John the Apostle. We don't read much about John the Apostle either. He's in the book of Acts, the first couple chapters. And we know from history he settles in Ephesus. You heard of the book of Ephesians, right? It's the letter to the church in Ephesus. And after Paul helped start it, John was kind of like the pastor. He was the leader. He was the bishop of that church as well as the other six churches in the area. And we know, and those, I'll show you a map next time I preach. It's um, modern-day Turkey is where these churches were, okay? So if you look on a map, that's where they were. And um, historians say that he may have been the oldest surviving apostle, as most of them were martyred. They were just all killed for, for preaching the gospel. And... John wasn't saved from tribulation or pressure, because that's what tribulation means, just FYI, put it in your mind. Tribulation means extreme pressure, right? So he wasn't saved from tribulations. Historians say that he was boiled in oil, and he survived. Can you imagine? Like, John was, I'm, I can't even imagine what his body looked like after that. Or if his eyes worked, you know what I mean? But after he didn't die, I think they were afraid of him because they could have killed him with a sword. They probably were like, you know what? Put this guy on this island. Just keep him away from us because we're a little terrified of him if he didn't die in the oil, right? So he was banned from, from civilization and put on this island called Patmos, who was, at, it was actually a prison island, kind of like, what's the island in San Francisco? Yes, probably like Alcatraz, except there was probably no building. It was probably just barren dirt, you know, and he just lived on this island. And the island actually, Patmos, means my killing, which is there's so much depth into the word of God. Um, but this is where he received this revelation. The one Jesus loved received the unveiling of Jesus, the revelation to share with us. So that was less of an introduction and more of setting a stage to understand not really who wrote the book, but how to read the book. How do we read the book? First, we understand that Jesus is the risen king. He's the, he's the most powerful 
right? King that will, has, or ever will be on stage as ruler of the universe, right? And then we read how to read Revelation. We read it as an intimate letter of the unveiling of Jesus to his loved one, his bride, how John received it. That's how we must read it, as his bride. So now we're going to set the stage for the seven churches so that next week I can just talk about it. Because this next part is also very powerful, where John actually comes face to face with Jesus. Okay? We are in... Revelation 1 still, and it's verse 10. And John tells us the story of what happened when he met the Lord face to face. It says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. His voice was like a trumpet. Verse 11 saying, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, right? So if you've ever read this, read this you know we, none of us want to be Laodicea, right? <laughs> we'll talk about that eventually. But there are four ways, predominantly four ways. There, some people say three ways. But there are four applications. The message to the churches traditionally in theological circles are interpreted, Okay. And I believe that while we go through this series, I'd like to focus on one, okay? Because all three of them, it's way too much. We would be here for months, okay? So the first, I'm just going to give them to you so you understand. The first one is the local application, that John was an actual bishop to actual churches, right? Seven churches. They were real. History tells you what happened to them after they either obeyed the message or disobeyed the message. And we'll get there. It's really interesting. But they're actual churches in that period of time. And we can learn from them, right? There's very practical application there. Number two, another way, is all churches of all generations. And that's kind of what I was talking about before, is what we pick a church, right? Like, I want to be Philadelphia. I'm not going to be Laodicea, right? And we're just, we're just going to claim that we are this church and not that church. And that could possibly be you know, a way to apply this message. Um, Number three, a prophetic application of church history. So some theologians say that each church represents a period of church history. And that could be true too. Remember, who was, who is, who is to come. Like God's word is so powerful, all of these can apply. I'm not saying that one is more important than the other. I'm just going to choose to focus on the last one. So the Dark Ages, the Reformation, the Pentecost Renewal, right? The Grace Movement, and possibly some we don't even know about. The church history, um, moments in history. And then the fourth one is, this is the one that we want to talk about, is the personal application. The personal application to the individual believer who has ears to hear and eyes to see, right? Like, I want to know how this message to the churches applies to my life. Like, am I lukewarm, Jesus? I want to know if I've lost my first love because I want to be responsible for this message. Amen? So that's how we're going to go into this series. We're going to really look at these seven churches as messages to us 
so that we can be intimate with the Lord and ask him how we can change our life, how we can love him well. So that's how we're going to do that. Um, So we're going to continue on the scene. Jesus shows up, and I'm almost done. Jesus shows up in Revelation 1. Now we're in verse 12 through 16. It says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And after turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the middle of the lampstand, I saw one like the Son of Man, clothed in a robe, reaching all the way to his feet, and wrapped around the chest with a golden sash. And his head and his hair were white like wool, like snow, and his eyes were like the flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it had been heated to a glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. This was a Jesus that John hadn't known before. This, this was a Jesus. Yeah, it was still his best friend, but he had never encountered anyone like this. And look what happened. It says, I, I switched to the, tr- the Passion Translation because I wanted you to see, although it's, it's, a, it's technically a paraphrase and not a translation, but it's so personal here. And it says, when I saw him, I fell down at his feet as good as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, and I heard his reassuring voice. That one sentence. We are facing a time in history that is frightening, right? And whether we go pre-trib, mid-trib, or post-trib, right? It doesn't matter because he's right here with us. He's got his hand on our shoulder and he's saying, don't fear. I'm here. Remember, the book of Revelation is the revealing of this guy who is the most powerful king of the universe. And he's right here. And he says, don't yield to fear. I am the beginning and I am the end, the living one. I was dead, but now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys that unlock death and the unseen world. You know, even that verse there, we think that the enemy is throwing a fit and showing off. No, Jesus is, Jesus is exposing him. The enemy's not in control. Jesus has the keys. He chose to open that door and let the enemy out. There is no power greater than Jesus. We've got to shift our mind, our mentality, and understand that he's in control. The enemy is not in control. And Jesus says to him, now I want you to write what you have seen. What is and what comes after the things that I reveal to you? The mystery of the lampstands and the seven stars is this. The seven lampstands are the seven churches, and the seven stars in my right hand are the seven messengers of the seven churches. So when we look at this passage in Revelation, we have to do two things. We have to remember who he is. He is the glorified Savior. 
He is Jesus, the terrifying one, right? Terrifying in a good way. (laughs) And we need to remember who we are in him. We are the one who lays back on his chest. We are the one who reclines with him like John did in that upper room. And just one thing that I want to... um, Man, I'm going to get ahead of myself again. I'm sorry. So first of all, he's the one who is the beginning and the end, the whole story. We talked about that. He's alive. He has authority over the darkness. He's the author in the story of the seven golden lampstands and the seven stars, the churches and the messengers or the leaders, and we find ourselves in him, right? But we can't approach the book of Revelation with our knowledge. We can't. We're not, no one on earth is smart enough. Not even the Da Vinci Code, right? We can't approach it trying to unlock it and figure it out. We have to approach it in relationship. It's the only way to approach it as his best friend. And we go back to Revelation 1.13, and this is the only thing we have time for, is to dive into this part. But that scripture verse says, and in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man clothed in a robe and wrapped around his chest with a golden slash or golden sash. Like John leaned on his chest, the Greek word for chest here is mastos. And you might recognize it like a mastectomy. It's, it's the closeness. It's the intimacy, the closeness. And the glorified Jesus has a heart, a golden sash of compassionate love for his bride. The Aramaic can be translated here, between his breast, a golden harness. It was made of pure gold for the divine nature holds everything together in divine order. This is where he holds us in love, right here. And this is where we can, we can use our relationship with him to interpret and understand what's happening in the world today, what's happening in this book. It's in that intimacy. It's in that protection, that golden sash that he keeps us there. Close to his heart, as John was familiar with his earthly relationship with Jesus, so we choose to be loved by the agape love of Jesus. So a clue into the first church, and that I can't get into it, but I did. It was so good, and it goes with this last point, so I'm going to give you a little peek. Ephesus is the first church, right? Ephesus is the first church. The meaning of Ephesus is desirable. Isn't that awesome? It's desirable or it's darling. Every church and every believer is desirable to Jesus because we are his bride. And this is the word the Greek bridegroom would use for the girl he desired to marry. He would call her Ephesus. He would call her desired one. What did he say to Ephesus? He said, you've lost your first love. You're doing everything right, but you're not loving me back. You're not letting me love you like the bridegroom. And so we'll get into that and all the details to it um, the next time. But today we need to approach this revealing of Jesus with the heart of a desired bride. What does a bride have to say? What does she have to say when she's proposed to? She has to say yes, or there's no wedding. 
She has to receive and accept the ring, right? The new name, all of it. She has to say yes, and it can't happen unless she says yes. So this morning, I want to challenge us as we get into this book of Revelation, as we pick up this Bible, knowing and understanding that it is really, truly a love story to us that we have to say yes to in relationship, not in our own mind, the last prophetic word. You know what I mean? All of that's good. But unless it's in relationship, it's just not real. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Without it, man, what would we have? God, we have you. And we are grateful for your word to us. It keeps us alive. It keeps us in relationship with you, Jesus. I ask today, God, that all of us in here, Father, would would just scream out from our hearts a resounding yes. Yes, we accept (laughs) We will be your bride. We will lean back on your chest. We will be carried in your sash, your golden lampstands, God, the ones that you're walking through, your presence, your very presence here in our lives, Lord Jesus. We thank you for the opportunity to be here in this time in history to know you, to say yes to you, and to represent you here on earth. I pray, God, that you would just draw us in to a greater intimacy this week, God. Morning, noon, and night, that we would stop and we would pay attention and be aware of your presence in our lives, Lord Jesus. That we we would make time for you. That our devotion would be real. I thank you, Jesus, for your word. I pray that it would penetrate our hearts, God, and make us new. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Would you stand up with me? If you're here today and you haven't made Jesus your best friend, my mom always does that. She she started Joshua Kids 30 years ago, and the slogan of Joshua Kids is, who's your best friend? Because she wanted those kids... When they got back on that bus, she wanted those kids to know that they weren't alone, that they had a best friend that would go into the projects and would go into those difficult schools and that hard family, that they weren't alone. And it sounds so simple, but that's what he wants to be for us. So with every head bowed and every eyes closed, I'm going to ask you today, do you have a best friend named Jesus? Because if you don't, you can make a decision today to become his best friend. And you do it by praying. You do it by asking him into your life. By allowing him to change you from the inside out. And if that's you today, I just want you to raise your hand so that I can pray for you. If you want to make Jesus your best friend today. If you want him to be Lord of your life. Commit your life to him. you're here today as well and you need prayer we're going to open the altars as they close in worship we're going to open the altars because this is God's house and he is an ever-present help in time of need he answers prayers so I just thank you Jesus that as we close this service 
God, you would tug at our hearts and that you would answer prayers in here today. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, let's close in worship. Um, You're welcome to come at the altar and worship, receive prayer. Thank you for being here today.